Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Robbie Albertza. He's a researcher at the University of Delft, or Delft University in the Netherlands. Uh, he's developed a sensor that is only 11 atoms in its size, which is amazing. Uh, we, so we're going to talk about that, how he built it, how he conceived of it, um, and what it can be used for. So, Robbie, thanks for coming. Yes, it's uh, my pleasure. Yeah, so what, um, was this your concept or is this uh, someone else's concept that you're working to advance or you know, how did this come about? So uh, it's not my concept. Um, so the paper that I uh, worked on, uh, which uh, got published, um, it has me and someone else, David Coffey, as the main authors. Um, and it was David's idea. Um, he has been, uh, he was doing a postdoc in our group and I'm currently doing a PhD in our group. Uh, so he had a little bit more already experience in in this field of research and he actually came about the idea because he wanted to um, use some kind of sensor to measure something um, but that sensor didn't exist yet so it had to be conceived. What what does this sensor measure? So what this sensor measures is um, so-called spin waves and a, a spin wave you can kind of see is a magnetic wave that moves across atoms. Um, so Generally, when we when we think about um, when we think about uh, waves, you can, for example, think of a a stone falling into water, and it creates these ripples that go uh, from the from the stone. Um, those are waves on the water, um, but there's also, for example, electromagnetic waves, light. Um, but if you only take the magnetic parts, then you get magnetic waves. So, you know, I'm familiar with electromagnetism, but uh... You know, what are magnetic waves? Where do they come from? How do they propagate? Tell me something about them. Right. So these atoms, uh, they're in my case iron atoms, and they're iron atoms on copper nitride. And these atoms have a so-called spin. It's uh, because they have uncoupled electrons that orbit around the, the nucleus. And these electrons provide a magnetic moment. And so this magnetic moment is what gives the, the, the iron... Um, its magnetic properties. Um, and so each ion atom can have its own magnetic moments. And let's imagine we have a chain of, I don't know, let's say five iron atoms in a row. Um, depending on how you orient them, these atoms or these, these magnetic moments can all point in the same direction. Let's say they all point up for north. So if we have them in a chain, then these atoms are so-called ferromagnetically coupled because they all point in the same direction. A wave would then be kind of like a wave in a football stadium where the first uh, atom, instead of pointing up, it starts pointing, I don't know, down for a second, and then it comes back up. And then a short while later, the second one goes down for a bit, and then it goes back up. And then the third one goes down for a bit and back up. So it's kind of like a wave um, of, these, um, of these atoms pointing either up or down, and it moves across these, this chain. So does this happen in only magnetic materials? Um, does it happen in disordered magnetic materials? I mean, with... You know, when does this happen and what uh, what the consequence of it? How does it, yeah, know, what so, effects does it have? 
So what you need is um, atoms that are that have such a such a spin, such a magnetic moment. So not all atoms uh, have this, um, but iron is a good example where it does happen, spe- specifically in uh, our case. Um, but so I described the situation of a of a chain, which is obviously very ordered. But if you just throw a bunch of um, iron atoms in a clump together, even there, the atoms will have a magnetic moment pointing in a certain direction. It will not be as neat where all of them point in the same direction. Um, they can point in kind of like various random directions or by, by coincidence point in the same direction. Um, still, in these, um, in these situations, there can be a magnetic wave, but they're super hard to understand because... For one, if it's already a disordered um, bunch of atoms, it's hard to understand that. And then add on top of that, that they start waving in different directions and they can have multiple waves uh, all happening at the same time. So while it is possible to have this in many different uh, scenarios and situations, we try to find very simple situations so that we can understand them from their basic principles. Okay, so you wanted to develop a sensor to... to determine what the magnitude or the existence of magnetic waves in various materials? Yeah, so we do know that um, when we have this chain of iron atoms that there are magnetic waves um, because we have been able to see how they reflect within such a chain. Um, But what we didn't really uh, know is how far do they travel. So, for example, this chain of five atoms, if I start up the first step and I first atom and then I, I, I initiate a magnetic wave, Will it reach atom number three? Will it reach atom number five? What if I make the chain 100 atoms long? Will it reach the end of the chain? Um, so we had some, some theoretical guess about that. Um, but obviously, it's good to verify whether your theory actually holds true. Um, and that's why we made the sensor. So the sensor is able to detect whether such a magnetic wave reached the end of the chain. Um, so we didn't really measure in the middle of the chain. But still, if we can verify whether it reached the end of the chain according to certain probability that corresponds very well with our, uh, with our theory, then we can say, okay, it appears that our theory correctly describes or seems to describe whatever we expect is going to happen. And we found exactly that. So we used the sensor on this chain of either three, five, or nine atoms, and we found that the expected chance of the spin wave reaching the end of the chain, based on our calculations, correspond very well with what we actually measure. So that's really cool. Well, so what happens? I mean, what kind of materials do, do magnetic waves propagate in? Do they propagate in all materials, just not very far? I mean, what, you know, again, what, if I look at various materials, do these magnetic waves constitute anything important about their material properties, or is it only certain materials? Yeah, so um, you need the, the material to have such a uh, spin, so these uncoupled electrons. Um, iron is a case. A lot of the so-called... Um, uh, 3D um, materials, or um, such as iron, cobalt, nickel, um, they all have uncoupled electrons. And so with them, you can have these magnetic properties. And so you can have these magnetic waves. Um, let's say hydrogen, um, what well, also has an uncoupled, but uh, helium, for example, helium does not have any uh, uncoupled electrons. And so with helium, you wouldn't be able to do this. Um, so, yeah, in general, most materials would allow for it. Um, the nice thing about iron is that it has four uncoupled electrons, so it has a large magnetic moment of two, um, because each electron adds half a, uh, half a magnetic moment. Um, and also, 
it is very nice because it's very abundant, so you can easily do experiments with it. So if, a, uh, if an element's electrically conductive, does that mean it's going to be magnetically conductive? I don't know if that's the right term. Um, I would say that is the right term, um, but not necessarily. So the fact that something is electrically conductive has to do with the band structure of the material. So that means how much um, energy does it cost for an electron to be excited to a so-called conduction band. Um, and all metals have this conduction band very close to the, the so-called Fermi energy, so close to the, the rest, like the, 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 base, the basis state, uh, the ground state as we call it. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that it has magnetic properties. Um, let's see, is there... So, for example, lithium is... Um, no, actually, lithium can have an uncoupled, uh, at an uncoupled electron. Um, let me think for a second, which... Uh, so what about of, copper? Copper is very conductive. You know, magnetically, yeah. what's it like? Yeah, so bulk copper um, does not have any um, magnetic properties. But if you look at single copper atoms, then the story is different. Because single uh, copper atoms, I believe, have uh, one single uh, uncoupled electron. And so if you have a chain of copper atoms, you will actually still be able to, to induce these magnetic waves in it. Okay. And then and now to the sensor. So how does your sensor work? And I guess it's a huge, it's a huge deal. The sensor is so tiny. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the sensor, we, we say it consists of uh, 11 atoms, um, which are eight in the middle and then three on the side. And so these eight in the middle um, it's a so-called bistable bit. So what happens is these um, these iron atoms have a couple have a, a coupling strength with their neighbor. So these eight uh, atoms in the middle they have a anti-ferromagnetic coupling, which means that if atom number one points up, then atom number two wants to point down, then three wants to go up, and then four wants to go down. So up, down, up, down, up, down. And that is one state that has the lowest energy. But there's a different state that also has the lowest energy which is down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. And so both these states, let's call them state A and state B, have the least amount of energy, and that means that they're stable. So if you start your, your chain of eight in state A, it can easily stay in state A because it's stable there anyway. But if you're able to bring it to state B, it will just stay in state B. So what we then did is we have this, this bistable bit of eight atoms, and on both sides... Uh, so the left and the right of it, for example, we add a smaller chain. Um, on the right, we have a small chain of three that we use as a reset lead. And on the left, we have our input lead, um, which is the lead in which we, uh, so this chain in which we make these spin waves. And since it's very weakly coupled to its neighbors, it can still feel the neighbors. But if both neighbors show a similar kind of um, uh, energy towards the, the guy in the middle, the guy in the middle is happy to stay in either A or B, whatever it was. Now, the trick is that we bring it into state A because then if we make an excitation in this, so a magnetic wave, spin wave, in our um, input lead, it's actually going to change a little bit the energy landscape to make um, uh, state B more favorable. So then it will go from state A to state B. But that only happens if the spin wave was able to reach the end of the chain. If the spin wave was not able to reach the end of the chain, 
it cannot influence this bistable bit in the middle. And so it will remain in state A like it initially was. So how we do our experiments is we bring our, our bistable bit in state A. We try to induce a, a spin wave or a magnetic wave. And we go back to our guy of eight and ask it, hey, are you in state A or in state B? And if it's in state A, then it's a suggestion that the spin wave didn't reach the end of the chain. And if it's in B, then it probably reached the end of the chain. And so we, re we re repeat this experiment hundreds of times to get statistics. For example, 60% of the time it reaches the end of the chain or 80% or of the time. And with that, we, we basically um, have some, uh, some responsiveness of this bias a little bit on our input parameters. And so we change our input parameters. We um, make more excitations, more spin waves, or we start the spin waves in a longer chain or we start them further away. And so like that, we're able to both understand how our sensor works, but also how our input leads. So our, our spin chain works. So what's the lower end threshold of, uh, I mean, what constitutes a wave, you know, if, uh, spin propagates through three atoms. Is that a wave? This needs to be eight. And, you know, like, what's the, how sensitive is this instrument? Yeah, so, I mean, on the one hand, that's kind of a, a question, when is something a wave and when, when is it just someone going? Uh, so, for example, in a stadium, if, if the whole stadium moves their arms up, it's obviously a wave. If it's just one person doing it and no one around it's doing it, is it a wave? Is it the start of a wave? Is it just a guy fling, flaying his arms? Um, we will in either way call all of them a wave because it's conceptually easier to just expand that from, let's say, two to infinite amount of atoms. Um, but what we found is that these waves, they only last for like 10 picoseconds, which is very short. Um, and since they have a, a velocity of about 50 meters per second, that means that we're only able to um, reach about five atoms long before the, the chain kind of decays, or before the spin wave decays. So when we made a chain of nine, we only saw that the first couple of atoms that we um, excited close to, the, close to the guy of eight were actually able to change the eight from A to B. Whereas if we tried all the way at the end of the chain, basically didn't affect our, our, our sensor. But where do the losses occur when you start a magnetic wave? What's happening? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So um, I keep on talking about these iron atoms. But these iron atoms are not floating in air. These iron atoms are on top of a surface, and the surface is um, a single monolayer, so a single atomic layer of copper nitrides. And that all is on top of a large copper gold um, substrate. And this copper nitride layer is meant to decouple um, our iron atoms from the metallic substrate, because copper gold is metal, um, but it's not a perfect isolator. On the one hand, we don't want a perfect isolator because, it, because if it's not a perfect isolator, then our, our measuring tool that we use, a so-called scanning tunneling microscope, is actually not able to, to work at all. So we don't want our, our iron atoms to be fully isolated, but we do want them to be isolated enough that the electrons that are just floating around and going back and forth in our metallic substrates don't decay our wave. So what happens is you've got these... This, this, this wave, in general, if, it's, if these iron atoms are just isolated in free space, the wave would go on infinitely long and it would bounce back and forth, back and forth until infinity. Um, but because it's on this uh, metal substrate, electrons from the metal substrate see, this, see these, these iron atoms and they hop on the iron atom and they bounce back. And as they do, 
they catch a little bit of the energy of the magnetic wave. And so this energy of the magnetic wave gets lost to the so-called bath of electrons of the metal underneath. So in nature, I mean, how strong are magnetic waves and material? Do they kind of pop in and out of existence, you know, all across a, a monolithic piece of iron? I mean, what, again, what's the consequence of them happening or not happening? What, what does it look like, again, if you have a, I don't know, a magnetized uh, piece of iron? What's happening? Yeah, so in a um, magnetized piece of iron, what's happening there is you've got um, billions, trillions, even more um, atoms all having their magnetic moments pointing in the same direction. Um, even there, it's possible to have magnetic waves on top of this like coherent um, state, um, which would cause a little bit of like noise in the magnetic properties. But I would say in, in general, it's a very small effect in these bulk materials, um, which is why we downsize to the point that we're not in bulk material yet. And then these magnetic waves are not a small effect anymore. Um, but yeah, these, the, the energy of these uh, magnetic waves is in the order of milli-electron volts, um, which is very, very, very small. So that means if I've got a, um, a bulk iron at room temperature, just the fact that the iron atoms are wiggling around so much and the electrons in the atoms are wiggling around so much due to the temperature, that already destroys any, uh, any kind of, of magnetic waves. They will still exist, they will still happen randomly, but they will decay so fast that you won't really notice it. So in our experiments, what we did is we did everything at one Kelvin, so quite cold. So is, it, is this more that um, you were able to build a sensor that's incredibly tiny, or is it the fact that uh, you're able to measure magnetic waves of more importance, or both? Yeah, so for, for me personally, what's more important is that we're able to measure these magnetic waves, because what happens um, initially before we were able to build this, uh, this detector is we were able to induce magnetic waves, but we can only measure them at the same location as where we induce them. But if we want to know whether these magnetic waves travel... Um, in a chain, we have shown that they do travel, but if we want to build more complicated structures and see how they travel in them, we want to have some kind of sensor to tell us how these magnetic waves propagate in these different structures. Um, since our current measuring tool is not able to do that, we needed to build something new. Now, the fact that it's like 11 um, atoms large, um, to us, whether it was 11 or 15 didn't really matter, Um 11 was just number that it happened to be. The fact that it's so small is a necessity in some sense because all of our, um, all of the things that we are investigating in our, in our lab are always going to be in the atomic scale. So it's always going to be, I don't know, between one and let's say 20 atoms. So then if you've got a very large sensor, that's going to be an issue as well. So you want your sensor to be approximately the same size as whatever you're going to measure. Are there any quantum effects because uh, you know, this, this, this sensor is so small? Yeah, definitely. So the facts, uh, so I mentioned that um, uh, these, this guy of eight can switch from state A to state B, right? Yeah, is there such a thing as magnetic state tunneling? Exactly. Where, or, you know, or is it in multiple states at once? Exactly, exactly. So we're actually making use of that fact. So... Um, normally, this this guy of eight would actually need to get a lot of energy in the order of um, let's say ten milli electron volts 
um, which is not which is something that we don't provide it and something that the temperature also cannot provide to it. Yet it's somehow able to go from state A to state B. And that is exactly using quantum mechanics. So there's a small overlap, as we call it, between certain states. And using that and the fact that there's a small energy difference allows for this for the switching from state A to state B. If it wasn't for quantum mechanics, it would just be stuck in state A forever. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were encouraging the switching. Yes, we uh, are encouraging. Okay. We yeah, we are encouraging uh, a switch by changing the energy spectrum, but we're not changing it so much that using classical um, uh, mechanics, it will be able to go from state A to state B. So. Oh, okay. So you're relying on the on quantum mechanics that a, a small percentage of the time there'll be this uh, this essentially tunneling effect that causes a change in state yes. or propagation. Yes. yes, exactly. So the so-called uh, energy barrier between state A and state B is in the order of 10 millielectron volts. But the but what we're doing is we're making a small difference between these two, two states in the order of 100 microelectron volts, so 100 times smaller. But even that small difference is going to be enough for it to want to go from state A to state B using this uh, quantum mechanical effect of state tunneling. But also the temperature, the low temperature is probably important so that the, yes. uh, the, the, the wavelength essentially of, of all the atoms involved is big enough that it's overlapping and you have a, like a coherent state, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we would not be able to do this at temperatures above 10 Kelvin. Um, we have done the measurements at one and four Kelvin, but if we start going higher, then we run into troubles um, with so-called thermal smearing. So, I mean, most materials aren't hanging out at one Kelvin. <laughs> so how is this going to translate to materials at room temperature or even materials that are, you know, at, at any operating in, uh, operating temperature, you know, commercially? What yeah, do you think no. is going to be the effect? Or, you, you know, is there a long road ahead of you in terms of understanding these? So... I mean, that kind of comes down to the question, what is the purpose of science? Um, On the one hand, is it to understand the world? Is it to develop technology? Um, I would say it's a combination of both. Um, You can only develop technology once you understand the world better. Um, In terms of whether our specific sensor is going to be, is going to end up in your phone at some point, I very highly doubt it. Um, instead, I would expect that this sensor can be used for us to understand better how these waves propagate. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the goal of this was not so much to develop technology that's going to be commercialized. Rather, it was used to help the scientific community have extra tools in order for the scientific community to advance. So you don't get no, in, I guess, room temperature materials, regardless of what they are, what the effects are, but um, it's probably safe to say that, you know, in order to understand quantum effects and materials in certain states, you know, in phase transition or at very low temperatures or, you know, in any state of it all, you want to characterize the quantum effects. And one of those effects is this magnetic, uh, I guess, conduction or induction, you know, whatever you want to call it, or propagation. Mm-hmm. Like propagation. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, in general, what science strives to do is just simplify everything until you can make all the numbers zero except for one. So try to make temperature zero, try to make um, the number of atoms zero, except for one then. Um, just try to simplify everything and then start from from the bottom up. Um, yeah, like that. Um, 
what do you think is happening in the, you know, uh, an integrated circuit? You know, now the gates are getting to be just, I guess, a couple atoms thick. So how do you think this magnetic wave propagation is, is, gonna, is affecting circuits? Maybe that's the, the first use case, you know, and better understanding their properties and behaviors. Yeah. Um, so most integrated circuits right now are using still um, electric waves, so wave or electrons moving around. Um, that has a disadvantage of also having um, heating because your electrons are moving and there's a little bit of friction, which causes heating. The advantage of these, these magnetic waves is that there's no mass moving and so there would be no heating. Um, so there is, so th- those are kind of still two different realms, but it is true that as you make everything smaller, you're going to end up in situations where you're going to have these spin waves regardless of whether you want them. Um, but you can still make these um, these transistors using materials that do not show any magnetic properties, and then you can kind of overcome them. Hmm. Okay. So I guess, it's, again, there's a long characterization ahead to uh, to see what their significance is, but, you know, at least you're getting there. Um, this sensor, I mean, making it itself, how did you get these 11 atoms isolated and then arranged properly? And, you know, how fine-tuned are they? Like, are they truly in a line? You know, are they if they're off by half an atom thick you know like how how, <laughs> how straight is this line like how good is it yeah so half an atom uh, off would be uh, very off for us so all of what we're doing um is done in a so-called scanning tunneling microscope so a scanning tunneling microscope is essentially a super sharp needle atomically sharp um that we bring really close to our to our surface but not to the point that it touches there's about one atom in between at this point, we have a, a different or a kind of similar tunneling effect where electrons tunnel from your super sharp needle to your surface, to your sample, to your substrate. This causes an electric current, so flow of electrons. Um, and since this flow of electrons, this current is exponentially dependent on the height, basically we can have our super sharp needle, needle or tip, um, to, be, to provide a kind of height map of, of, our, uh, of our substrate. So we can make uh, the images uh, with that. So that's always nice. But we can also use this this tip, this needle, to literally pick up a single atom and place it somewhere else. And since we are using a substrate that has a, a square lattice, we can basically end up putting our atoms on points anywhere on this square lattice. So it's very easy to make straight lines like that. Hmm. Okay. And again, how straight is straight? Like, what's your tolerance, you think? And if you're off by literally one atom's width, can you tell? And I, w- I would think that would make a huge change in your uh, in your sensor, whether it works or not. Oh, yes, yes. So um, what we do is our guy of eight, for example, um, there's two lattice sites um, in between the atoms. And between this guy of eight and the guy of three, or the input chain, there's three lattice sites in between. So we're talking about a difference of 100 picometers or maybe 200 picometers. And that is enough to significantly alter how they couple with each other. Um, The good thing, however, is that the atoms like to stay in these lattice sites. And with our tip, we have precision up to tens, perhaps even a single picometer. So it's not that difficult for us to pick it up and drop it exactly at um, at a lattice site. 
And even if we drop it slightly off center, it will fall into the center. So that makes it quite easy for us to align these things. Yeah, I wonder, could you use this as a ruler to judge the uh, linearity or flatness of a surface? Yes, definitely. We, uh, um, we are able to see atomic steps. So if you've got a, um, a surface that you think is atomically flat, give it to us and we can tell you how atomically flat it really is. Yeah, I guess this will have a lot of uses, you know, in addition to the magnetic waves. So, very interesting. Yes, yes. How, so, how long could you, um, could you make this, you think, where it would just, it literally would act as a ruler? You know, if you made it, I don't know, 100 atoms long, do you think that would be uh, very useful? I don't know if it's going to be useful as a ruler. Um, at that point, you might as well just use your uh, your needle, move it across a certain distance, and using your well no no here's why i say it like when you're doing um like when i see like electron micrographs you know scanning electron scm tem whatever Mm -hmm. what if you had also on the slide this again i'm just going to call it a ruler or a certain number of atoms length could you literally use you know some kind of machine vision to get you much more accurate sizes and dimensions of things when you're doing this yes 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 um, so there are sometimes collaborations with our group and different groups where they want something scanned using our, our scanning microscope. And we can tell them how, it, how the surface looks like on atomic, uh, into atomic details. Mm, okay. Well, I guess there's, uh, you know, like, like I said, a lot of uses, which is great. You know? Yeah. So it was, it, the scanning microscope was invented in 1973. Um, and it got the Nobel Prize. I don't think it got it that year, but shortly afterwards. Yeah. Do they have any trouble resolving the size of things in the, you know, in these kind of microscopes or like, would your, would your sensor work or help or there's really no need for it? Um, so I would say the only limitations for, for this microscope to work is that whatever you're going to measure needs to conduct electricity. So you cannot really measure anything that's non-conductive, but anything else you can measure up to atomic precision. Okay. Very good. Well, excellent. What's the best way for people to keep tabs on, uh, you know, the progress of your work and the sensor? How can they, where can they go? So um, on one hand, there is uh, our uh, group websites, which is uh, Ottolab, which is O-T-T-E-L-A-B dot T-U Delft dot N-L, which is uh, from my group. But I also have a, a YouTube video, um, which further explains how, how the system works. I am trying to see if I can find the YouTube link and I can hopefully say it out loud. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Yes. So let me go to the YouTube page. So the video would be uh, youtube.com slash ISD capital D capital E uh, L X U capital N six four. Alternatively, you can just look up on YouTube, uh, type for 11 atom sensor, and that should give you the video as well. Okay, yeah, that's a simple way to do it. <laughs> yes. Well, great. Well, Robbie, thanks for coming on the podcast. I know it's late for you, you know, overseas, and I appreciate you being here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to us. Yeah. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.